something I don't do very often, but this sermon needs a disclaimer um, before I actually preach it. Um, so you're actually get a bit of a longer introduction than uh, normal, but I felt very strongly impressed uh, to say these things. Proverbs chapter 27 verses 4 through 5 says, Open rebuke is better than secret love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. I'm not going to kiss you today. And a matter of fact, I'm going to be quite blunt today. This is not going to be a shouting message. Some of you may not like me after this. I'm just, I'm just going to be honest with you. Before I preach this message, I got to give some backstory. I want to tell you why I preach. Why I got into ministry. On December 31st, 1995, I was 11 years old sitting in my home church at Apostolic Tabernacle in Benton Harbor, Michigan. It was a New Year's Eve night. And there was a man of God by the name of Brother Rick McAndrew, which I so thankful for him being in my life. And he began to preach about hell. And as he was preaching about hell, for the lack of, a, of better terms, I had an out-of-body experience. I left my body, had a vision, whatever you want to call it, and I went to hell. Now, I didn't go to hell because I was lost. I was actually saved. But I went to hell to see all the souls that were there because I didn't tell them about Jesus Christ. And in this vision, I saw the souls of the damned screaming and shrieking at me as to why I didn't tell them about the gospel of Jesus Christ and that they could have been saved if I had been a witness to them. And there was an angel in this vision. I'm giving you the short story. And the angel said, this is just a, just a vision, just a dream. But if you don't witness and tell people about Christ, this is going to become a reality. And when I came out of that experience, I went down to the altar and I made an oath to God. I said, from this point forward, I will dedicate my entire life to the winning of souls and the preaching of the gospel. This is what drives me. This is what caused me to become the man that I am today. My parents and my family will tell you I became a changed boy from that point on. For weeks, I had nightmares of the shrieks. For weeks, I could smell the stench of burning flesh because it was so real. And I feel strongly in the Holy Spirit that I am sent here today as a messenger from God to warn you of the wrath that is to come. The house is on fire and you are asleep. And now I'm not going to shake you and say, oh, oh, please get up. Could you wake up, please? No, I'm going to wake you up as much as I can, shake you as violently as I can to shake you to your senses to get out of the house that is on fire and that is burning. So you'll have to deal with my bluntness and my candor. But I have a mandate from God. I made an oath 29 years ago at that altar in Benton Harbor, Michigan, that I would do everything I can to win the lost and to warn them of the wrath that is to come and the love that awaits them should they believe in the saving power of Jesus Christ. Turn with me to two openings of scripture, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5, and we will also be looking at Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 21. We'll start first with 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3, and I'll give you time to get there. I'm going to do my best to be obedient to what the Lord has given me. I've been meditating on this for almost six weeks, and it's been just difficult because I feel so strong I need to preach this. And like I said, this may come across a bit harsh, but the only reason why is because the house is burning. That's what I'm seeing. The house is on fire, and if I don't wake you up, if I don't get you out of your, out of wherever you are and get you out of this burning house, you're going to die lost, and I'm not going to have that on my conscience. No one's going to hell because I did not do my part to tell them about Jesus. Second Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations 
and every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God, bring into captivity every thought into the obedience of Christ. Now turn with me to Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. Romans chapter 1, verses uh, 18 through 20. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. For God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. I want to read that again. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. The title of my message today is, What's Your Excuse? What is your excuse? I'm going to pray, and I'm going to pray with everything that is within me. Because if there ever was an hour that the church needs to wake up and come to the cross, that this world needs to hear the gospel, the true gospel of Jesus Christ, it is now. And the only thing that's going to do it is when the word of God is clearly preached under the anointing of the Holy Spirit to penetrate the barriers and the obstacles that we put up to protect ourselves from the wrath of God. But I want to tell you today that the Holy Spirit is here, and I pray in the name of Jesus that he would change our hearts this afternoon. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we seek you, we beseech thee, we plead with thee, we need you in this hour. I pray in the mighty name of Jesus that the power of the Holy Ghost would so grip this church, would so grip the listeners that are within my hearing, that they could not gainsay nor resist the logic of my words or of your words. Bring us, God, back to the cross. Bring us back to an altar of repentance. I pray in the name of Jesus in all desperation that somebody would be saved today, that somebody Somebody would give their life to Christ. That somebody would stop resisting the arm of the Holy Spirit. That somebody would fully put their trust in Jesus. Father, have your way. Move through me. Speak through me. Muse me as you can. Let your will be done in me and through me. In the name of Jesus. I bind every devil and every imp and every demon in our vicinity. To have no power or influence in this place. I declare unto you in the name of Jesus. I declare war against you. You spirit of carnality spirit of secularism, spirit of blindness that is causing the church of the living God to go to sleep. I come against you in the mighty name of Jesus and I declare in the name of Jesus that the radiance, the illumination of the Holy Spirit and the word of God would take us to our senses. Have your way, O God, in the name of Jesus. We thank you and praise you for what you have done, for what you're going to do in this place and in the name of Jesus. Let the church of the living God say amen. You may be seated. I want to talk to you today about excuses. About the reasons and the justifications that we make to prevent ourselves from doing any particular action. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 6 and we'll be looking at verse number 5. Genesis 6 verse 5. This is the story of the condition of the human race when the flood was about to uh, come upon the world. And what incurred God's wrath is what is stated here in Genesis 6 verse 5. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I want you to highlight the words imagination and thoughts. The Hebrew word for imagination is the word yetzer. It can be translated imagination, but it also can be translated the framework, the purpose, or that which we, the intellectual framework by which we frame our ideas and our thoughts. The, the word for thoughts in the Hebrew is machashabah, which means the devices or the purposes, the inventions, the plans of man. God said that 
the framework, the yetzer of man's reasoning, the foundation, the basis by which man formulates his ideas and concepts and purposes, was completely corrupted and infested by wickedness and by sin. The very foundation and basis for man's ideas were wicked and perverse. This is the factor that incurred God's judgment on man through the flood, and it is one of the primary causes for sin. The imagination or the framework of man's thoughts is what God primarily judges. The Bible says in First Chronicles chapter 28 verse 9, when David was coronating the uh, his son Solomon to be king, he says, And thou Solomon my son, know thou the God of thy father, and serve him with a perfect heart, and with a willing mind, for the Lord searcheth all hearts, and understandeth the yetzer, the imaginations of the thoughts, the machashabah. If thou seek him, he will be found thee, but if thou forsake him, he will cast thee off forever. God not only looks at our actions, but he looks at the thoughts and the intents of our heart. He looks at the framework by which we justify and base our decisions. He says in First Chronicles 29 verse 18, David goes on in his prayer when he's having the consecration of Solomon to be king. He says, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, our fathers keep this forever in the imagination, the yetzer of the thoughts, the machshabah of the heart of thy people and prepare their heart unto thee. Do you see here that there is a, there's a theme, there's a pattern, there is a connection between the imaginations and the thoughts of the heart. And David's prayer for the nation of Israel and for his son was that the word of God would be kept in his imagination, would become the basis and the foundation, the framework from which he derives his concepts, his perceptions, and his ideas. It is because one's imagination or framework is not based upon the word of God is why people are evil and why we are seeing so much chaos and so much confusion and there is no discernment in the body of Christ. The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 26 verse 3 that thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose yet sir whose mind is stayed on thee. The reason why you're losing your mind because you have removed the foundation of God's word as being the basis for your concepts, for your devices, for your purposes, for your plans, for your intents and for your desires. Instead, man's imagination, his framework is based upon himself and his own desires. Jeremiah 7 verse 23. The prophet Jeremiah has been sent to an apostate nation. A nation so engulfed and entrenched in idolatry and wickedness that it would seem that nothing could shake them to their senses. Jeremiah 7 verse 23 says, But this commanded I them, saying, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and ye shall be my people. And walk ye in in all the ways that I have commanded you, that it may be well unto you. But they hearkened not, nor inclined their ear, but walked in the counsels and in the imagination of their evil heart and went backward and not forward. In Jeremiah chapter 16, verse 11, Jeremiah says this, Thou shalt thou say unto them, Because your fathers have forsaken me, saith the Lord, and have walked after other gods. And have served them and worshipped them and have forsaken me, have not kept my law. And ye have done worse than your fathers. For behold, ye walk everyone after the imagination. Notice the imagination. That is the foundation for our justifications. The imagination or framework or our thoughts is the basis for our actions. It's what we use to justify our choices. Since man makes itself its own judge, it can authorize and define any of its decisions as being right and acceptable. Another word for this justification is called an excuse. What is an excuse? It is an explanation offered as a reason to be released or exempt from responsibility and obligation or the consequences of our choices. An excuse is a justification or defense of one's actions or situations. Mankind needs some sort of excuse. It needs some sort of justification, some sort of explanation, computation, some reconciliation of why it's doing the things that it's doing. The fact of the matter is, and this is the stupid part, because mankind, it wants to have an excuse so it have the freedom of choice without the consequences of those choices. We want the freedom to make decisions without having the consequences of those decisions. I want to do whatever I want. I just don't want to deal with the aftermath. 
We don't want the consequences. The Bible says in Galatians 6 verse 7, however, Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. No, you cannot party all night and get drunk and somehow avoid a hangover. No, you can't overdose on drugs and live to see the next day. No, you can't sleep around with anything on two legs and not get an STD. I'm sorry, if you don't like what you're reaping, then change what you're sowing. Man needs an excuse. Freedom to choose, but also free from the consequences of my choices. To achieve this, man must claim that it has no control. So that his excuse will have merit. I want you to listen very carefully to this next point. It must do this because the power or jurisdiction of an excuse begins where self-control and responsibility ends. Because I can't hold you accountable if you can't control it. Accountability, responsibility, the power of an excuse where its merit begins is where my self-control ends. Now, if there's anyone who understands how an excuse can be dangerous and how it could possibly cause you to miss out on success is Shaquille O'Neal. Shaquille O'Neal was, uh, is, of course, one of the greatest uh, centers in NBA history. He was inducted into the list of 75 greatest players of all time. Uh, his father abandoned him when he was young, and he was raised by his stepfather and mother, and he, beca- he became a four-time NBA champion. And the thing is, it wasn't just his success on the basketball court that made him amazing, but it was also his successes after he retired. Did you know that Shaquille O'Neal holds a master's in business administration? And he used that degree to invest in companies and build an an impressive portfolio. He's the second largest individual shareholder of Authentic uh, Bands Group, which owns Forever 21, Barney's New York, JCPenney, Reebok, Papa John's, Auntie Annie's, Five Guys, Krispy Kreme, just to name a few of the businesses that he owns. Did you also know that after he got his business administration degree, he also decided to get his Ph.D.? Did you know Shaquille O'Neal is a doctor? He has a doctorate. Now, when he was in an interview with Taylor Rooks, Shaq spoke about the simple philosophy he adopted in life and how it was similar to that of Magic Johnson and Isaiah Thomas. And I quote, Shaq said this, I'm programmed not to make any excuses. I never let no excuses come in, and it's not something that I made up. Magic ain't have no excuses. Isaiah Thomas ain't no ain't have no excuses. Dr. J didn't have no excuses. Muhammad Ali didn't have no excuses. So why can I have any excuse? And I'm making more than any of them ever made. They paved the way for me. I'm representing for them too. Shaq's philosophy to success was to not give himself a reason to fail. Because that's often what we do. We want an out. We want a reason to fail. Uh, I've been trying to get in shape. Still trying. My wife also has uh, been jumping on the bandwagon. She, um, she bought this, this uh, lady protein supplement uh, powder to use in our workouts. After we work out, you're supposed to give, get supplements so you get the right nutrients for your body to heal after you've worked out. The name of the brand is called Lady Boss. And uh, it came with a refrigerator magnet. And my wife put the refrigerator magnet on, on, on the fridge and I was walking by and I read it and I was like, ouch. Because it said this, when you lose your excuses, you will find your results. Your six pack isn't hiding, hiding under a layer of fat. It's hiding under your excuses. The reason why you ain't seen no results is because you've not yet gotten rid of all the reasons to fail and not work out and not get off your behind and change your life. When you lose your excuses, you'll find your results. Success is what comes after you stop making excuses for your failure. Now, we don't want to hear that. We want somebody to give us a pass. We want, oh, my life is hard and all this other stuff. We want, we want a reason to fail. We want it out. We don't want to be responsible. We don't want to be held accountable. We don't want to deal with the obligations of our choices. Now, getting back to Paul, turn back to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. I need to give some context here. In 2 Corinthians, actually let me say, in 1 Corinthians, Paul wrote a scathing letter to the Corinthian church because it was so morally bankrupt and infested with wickedness, he gave them a scathing rebuke. And in the second epistle, 
he is now dealing with individuals in the church who don't like him very much. Matter of fact, they are challenging his position as an apostle. And they are challenging his authority. Some even say that he's not even being guided by the Holy Spirit of God, but has carnal aspirations and motives. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, look at verse number 1. We'll start at verse number 1 here. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. Now I, Paul, myself beseech you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. He's like, I'm trying to be nice. I'm, tr- I'm trying to be nice. I beseech you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in the presence and base among you, like when I'm there, y'all think I'm nobody. The disrespect. This is the apostle Paul we're talking about. But being absent and bold toward you. It's like whenever I write these, I have to write these terrifying letters. When I'm there, I'm trying to be nice and everything, but when I get away, I get away and I hear all these reports of y'all doing just crazy stuff. I gotta write these, these long letters to rebuke y'all. Verse two. But I beseech you that I may not be bold when I'm present with that confidence where I think to be bold against some. Which think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. They said, Paul, you're walking toward the flesh. You're just trying to be, oh, you just want to be the leader. You just want all the credit of being an apostle and all this other stuff. We ain't trying to hear all that. You ain't no apostle. You didn't actually, you weren't there with Jesus at the time with the other apostles. And so his position as an apostle is being challenged. And they're saying he's carnal and he has ulterior motives. And these charges are being used as a justification to not obey or follow his own instructions. And even now, the authority of God's word in the church is also being questioned so that unholy lifestyles can be excused. Oh, we ain't trying to hear what the preacher trying to say. You don't have any authority to speak in my life, pastor. You don't have any authority to speak in my life, preacher. Who gave you authority? Who died and made you king? Jesus. Jesus did. Revelation says he's made us kings and priests. I'm part of a royal priesthood. Jesus died and made me a king so I can speak with authority so you would come out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So they're coming up with reasons. Not I ain't trying to hear all that, Paul. I ain't trying to do all that. For excuses. So Paul has to do something interesting. Paul in his epistle had to disarm and strip his audience of any reason not to follow what the Holy Spirit was speaking through him. Now, this brings us to verse number three. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalted itself against the nods of God, bringing to captivity every thought into the obedience of Christ. Now notice, if you remember earlier in our study, I showed you throughout the Old Testament how there was a connection between imaginations and thoughts. And what is it that Paul is dealing with? He says, casting out imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing into captivity every thought into the obedience of Christ. The Greek word for imaginations is logismos. It means the reckonings, the computations, the reasonings, such as hostile to the Christian faith, a judgment or a decision. Paul is not talking about, whenever we read this text, we quote it out of its context. We think that it's talking about demons and principalities and spiritual powers when it's talking about casting down strongholds. No, what Paul is not talking about, the demon principalities, he's talking about the excuses that are in the church that are stopping people from living holy and righteous. The way that we have revival is not necessarily by calling out demons. It's by changing people's minds about the gospel and getting them to repent. You're not having revival by all the principalities you're quoting and calling down. You're having revival when people are coming to an altar and confessing their sins and turning away from their wickedness. That's where the real battle is. Yes, the devil does blind. And yes, the devil does deceive. But what we are fighting for are people's minds, are people's souls. And in order to get them saved, I've got to tear down their excuses to live an unholy lifestyle. Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God. What mankind is doing, it's saying my pedigree, my degree, my intellect, my thinking, my reasoning, my excuses are superior to what God says in his word. That's exactly what the devil did to Eve. Half God said, half God said that you cannot eat of any tree in the garden. What I'm telling you, Eve, is greater than the knowledge that God gave unto you. So now this gives you an excuse to go and partake of that which you should not have. 
So my objective in preaching the gospel, my object, every objective in anyone teaching or preaching the gospel or preaching the word of God is to tear down the walls of excuses that keep us nailed to the pew, that keep us in unholiness and ungodliness. I'm casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God. And I bring into captivity every thought, every idea, every computation, every calculation, every reconciliation, everything that they're saying into the obedience of what Christ has said in his word. The biggest hindrance or stronghold to people being saved, delivered, or experiencing the power of Jesus Christ are the excuses they create to justify remaining in sin. Your deliverance is hiding behind your excuses. Your victory is hiding behind your excuses. Your sin is hiding behind your excuses. The reason why you've not changed because you've not gotten rid of the excuses to stay in your sin. This is why Paul says we must tear down every argument, every reason or excuse that says it is superior to what God says in his word. And we do this by preaching the pure, unadulterated word of God under the anointing of the Holy Ghost. First Timothy chapter four, verse one says this, Paul talking to Timothy, he says, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all on suffering and doctrine. Unfortunately, what we are seeing in the body of Christ is the exact opposite. The pulpits, our churches are not are strengthening the walls of our excuses instead of tearing them down. We have pulpits affirming lifestyles, making sin look attractive, making heaven look like hell and hell looking like heaven. We have churches that are cowards and afraid to stand for the word of God, afraid to preach holiness and separation from the world. We have cowards in the pulpits, hirelings and sheep and for wolves in sheep's clothing uh, that are not preaching the power of the word of God uh, which is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. First Timothy chapter 4 verse 3 the verse 3 in this, this same text says verse 3 for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine uh, but after their own lust shall they keep to themselves uh, teachers uh, having itching ears because of the impotent weak positive life affirming preaching that we are hearing today people are coming to church but they're not coming to Jesus I gotta repeat that one again they're coming to church but they're not coming to Jesus And that's why you're leaving the same way you came. You came to church. You, you can mark your check on the attendance roll. You did your due diligence and fulfilled your duty. You came to church. But have you come to Jesus? Have you encountered the resurrected Savior? We are called to be salt and light. But the churches today have become sugar and darkness. They become sweet and soft. They will not tell people the truth. This is why we have churches filled with thousands who will be lost because the preacher cares more about filling the seats of his sanctuary than filling their souls with the word of God. Have you come to Jesus? Not just come to church. I hear the old song say, when I came to Jesus, weary, wounded, and sad, I I found him a resting place and he has made me glad. We have to come to Jesus. When you encounter the holiness, the righteousness of God, how dare you have the audacity to say, stay in that cesspool of life you call sin? That's the problem. People are not encountering the real resurrected Savior. They're not encountering Jesus. And because of that, they are placated. They feel comfortable to stay in their sin. Leonard Ravenhill said this, We are asking people to be saved who don't even know they're lost. You're giving all to, oh, come to Jesus, get saved. They don't even realize they're in sin. They don't even know what repentance is. They don't even know what it means to forsake their old lifestyle and give themselves over to Christ. Pulpits have become sissified and weak and impotent. Leonard Ravenhill said this. Leonard Ravenhill said this. He's, there was a pastor, this was hundreds of years ago, there was a pastor in the church. He had his church in this town. I think it was in Ireland. And uh, the church was, for the most part, it wasn't, this attendance was dropping and dropping. And the, in the town, there was a theater where they were putting on plays of Shakespeare and so on. And the, that, that theater was packed every night. Every night was packed. 
And the pastor was very bothered by this. And so he goes down to the theater and he asks the, one of the lead roles in the play. He's like, how is it? Why is it that your theater is so packed and my church is so empty? And the actor said this. He says, I'm an actor. It's my job to make fake things look real. But you make real things look fake. And that's what's happening in the church. The Bible is just myths and fairy tales. And you can't really believe the word of God. You're making the word of God of none effect through your tradition. And you make the word of God fake when it's actually real. But we'll believe more what's on Netflix and what's on, what's on Peacock. And what's, we'll believe the falsehoods. We'll believe the fake is real. And deny the real and call it fake. Warn you that call evil good and call good evil. People don't know that they're lost because they're blinded by their own excuses which justify their way of living. So, the remainder of this message, I'm going to be tearing down the imaginations and the excuses that prevent you from truly coming to Jesus. Because if we can't get rid of that, that wall, you will die in your sins. That's the honest to God truth. I know we don't want to hear that. Because Matthew 7, 21 says, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father shall enter the kingdom of heaven. Many shall say unto me in that day, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And have we not cast out devils? And done in thy name done many wonderful works, now professing them? I never knew you. Depart from me, ye workers of iniquity. It's one of the scariest verses in the Bible. You could be sitting in church. Again, you came to church, but you didn't come to Jesus. I want to deal with the excuses, the walls, the Berlin walls that separate us from entering into what God has for us. Excuse number one is the pleasure of sin, the lifestyle excuse. This excuse glorifies feelings, emotions, and desires. It emphasizes self-indulgence but rejects self-control. And it justifies the sinner... In two ways. Way number one. By claiming their desires were not chosen. And because of this they have no control over their feelings and what to do with them. Remember I said earlier that the power of an excuse begins where self-control ends. So in order for my excuse to have any merit, I have to in some way affirm the fact or substantiate the fact that I have no control. And so the argument is then made. That I, these feelings and desires, I have no control over them. I didn't choose them. I was born that way. They cannot resist or deny their desires because that would be denying who they really are. We want you to be your authentic self. Be true to yourself. Don't deny your emotions and your feelings. Then you're lying to yourself. You're living a, a false life by denying your desires and denying your lusts and your feelings. You need to be your authentic self. Now I'm being the real me. I'm the, I'm the real me. I'm keeping it real. I'm keeping it 100. By not me now doing these things. I was born this way. That's why you need to be born again. There is no reason to stay in a filthy lifestyle. Let me explain something to you. Okay? It's never right to do wrong. That seems really like profound, ain't it? It's never right to do wrong, even if it feels good. Guess what? It's still wrong. You can get a hold of yourself. <laughs> Believe it or not. I was born this way. Everything we are seeing in this world, in this culture, is about self-indulgence. We're a vacuum cleaner just sucking in it. <sighs> ah, as much pleasure we can siphon out of the air. Matthew 16, 24. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself. And take up his cross. And follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. And whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? 
But this is how I feel. I can't control how I feel. I got to do what I feel. What if I feel like punching you in the throat? What if I just, I don't want to deny myself. I have to be my authentic self. I really want to punch you in the throat right now. You can't judge me. This is my truth. This is my reality. How dare you judge me? And be offended at the fact that I'm just expressing my truth by punching in the throat. It's my truth, not your truth. It's my truth. And I have a right, doggone it, to express my truth. Nonsense. Foolishness. Nonsense. We come up with every excuse to indulge. To indulge in things that the word of God clearly condemns. We'll sit and watch horror movies with monsters and goblins and witchcraft and justify it. We'll watch programs with sex and adultery and homosexuality and fornication and all manner of evil and murder and blood and guts and then have the audacity to come in the church and say, Hallelujah and thank you, Jesus. I came to church. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 says... There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able. But will with the temptation also make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. I know you're dealing with temptations. I know you're dealing with attractions. And you're thinking that there's no way out. The Bible says differently. The Bible says that with every temptation, I will give you a way of escape. And Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father, but by me. With every temptation, there is a way. You've got, I've got lusts and desires i got to fight with too. But if everyone gave into their desires, the whole human race would be wiped out. We'd all be dead because I know all y'all want to kill somebody. Let's just be honest. Come on now. Come on. Come on. Let's be real. Let's be legit now. So, number two about the pleasure of sin excuse. The second way they justify this is by claiming that truth and morality are relative to the self. By doing this, they can betray their sin as not being evil or not that bad. Everything's about me. Morality is relative. A post-modernistic uh, society that we live in that says that truth is relative. As I was just saying, my truth. Now, I'm going to use an analogy. Dr. Erwin Lutzer gave this brilliant analogy. I was listening to this podcast And he gave this brilliant analogy of, this is going to describe to you the chaos that we're seeing in our society today. Let's say you're in a big city, and you need to get on the east side of the city. There are no uh, real street signs or anything, and all you have is a compass. And so the thing is, to get there, you have to follow the compass, which will tell you which is north, east, west, south, right? The way that a compass works is that there's a magnet that's inside of it. And it detects the magnetic field of the earth. The earth is like a giant magnet. It has a north pole and a south pole. And these magnetic fields are strongest at the poles, particularly the north pole. So as long as you know where north is, you can then know where east, west, and south is by where the compass is is going. But let's say you get a giant magnet and you put it in your backpack. Your compass is always going to be pointing to you. And not to, to where north or south or east or west is. So no matter where you turn, it's going to just be pointing you, you, you. You're the destination, you. You're the end all and be all of everything. It's me, myself, and I, you. So no matter where you're going to try and figure out where, where is east, where is east, it keeps pointing the same direction. It keeps pointing back at me. How am I supposed to get anywhere? That's what happens when everything's all about me, myself, and I. Myself, my truth. There's no absolute referent or point of reference by which to derive truth because it's all about you. It's whatever you think. You'll never be able to get anywhere. And that's why we're seeing people who don't, they don't know where to go, which bathroom, which think this is where the bathroom is. Right? We have people who don't even know what they are. What are you? We don't even know what we are because why? Because the compass, we got a giant magnet, we got a giant ego that's so big, such an attractive, magnetic personality. But everything points back to me about my feelings, my emotions, my truth. Jesus said in John 17, 17, Sanctify them by thy truth. Thy word 
is truth. I need something that is objective, something that is as an authority that's higher than myself to tell me the truth because the heart is desperately wicked and it's easily deceived. Deception. Second Corinthians ten twelve says this: For we dare not make ourselves of the number, or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves, but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. It's not wise to use yourself as the ruler to judge what is right and wrong. To really kind of show you the hypocrisy and the confusion that we're seeing within these lifestyles. If a man walked into a hospital wearing scrubs and a white coat who wasn't a doctor and began interacting with patients as if he was one, we would call that practicing medicine without a license and they would be arrested. If that same man were to put on a U.S. Army uniform, having never served in the military and interact with the public as such to gain unearned respect, favors, gratitude, or even access to a base, we'd call that man a fraud, a poor excuse for a human being, and he would probably be arrested for trespassing on federal soil. If that same man were to put on a policeman's uniform and began interacting with people as such, utilizing authority that was never given, we'd call that impersonating an officer and arrest that man. But if that same man puts on a dress, heels, and some lipstick and begins interacting with the public such as attempting to date other men or access places explicitly designed for women, we'd call that legal, brave, and being true to yourself. That man is federally protected, applauded, defended, and accepted. You're being so brave. Being so brave entering women's sports and beating all the women. Is that that too real for y'all? So brave. You're so strong. But I say unto you this. If that same man comes to the cross honestly, sincerely, unabashedly, and he interacts with the one who hung from it, forsaking his wicked ways, I call that repentance. If that sane man believes in the one and only truth of Jesus Christ and receives the Holy Spirit into his life, I call that salvation. If that sane man then goes away from the cross, changed, forgiven, and grateful enough to tell a dying world of what he has discovered, I call that transformation. We don't need transgenderism. We need transformation from dead to life, from sin to righteousness. I told you I was coming for y'all. I'm not through yet. How much time I got? Let's look at the flip side of this coin, which is the next excuse, the condemnation excuse. This excuse glorifies the power of their sin more than the power of Christ's work at the cross to redeem them. They claim that their sin is too great to forgive and they are too far gone for Christ to save. Now I want to have a little bit of a softer tone here. Because there are some of you who honestly, you're struggling with your sin. And you don't like it. And you're trying to do right. But you're still falling prey to it. And then you feel like the the scum of the earth and you feel like there's no hope for you. And you feel like there's no way God can save you. So you won't come to Christ because no, my sin is too great. My sin is too horrible. I'm too wicked for God. to. How could God love a filthy person like myself? Matthew 19, 23. This is after Jesus has just had a conversation with the rich young ruler. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, Verily I say unto you that a rich man shall hardly enter the kingdom of heaven. And again I say unto you, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When his disciples heard it, they were exceedingly amazed, saying, Who then can be saved? Who can be saved? Verse 26. But Jesus beheld them and said unto them, With men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. No, beloved, you are not too far gone. You are not too entrenched in sin. For the arm of Christ is not slack. His arm is not short. That he can reach you in the deepest valley of your depravity and pull you out and put you with him in heavenly places. That what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. The blood will never lose its power. It reaches to the highest mountain and it flows to the lowest valley. I tell you the blood. It gives me strength day 
unto day and it will never lose its power. Your sin is not greater than the blood of Jesus. To say that what Christ's work affected at the cross was not enough to save you is blasphemy. And as, a, as an insult to Jesus, like you're crucifying him all over again. Oh, that was enough to get you to understand how much I love you and how much I want you to be saved? That's a poor excuse. No, the blood of Jesus is able to forgive. The blood of Jesus is able to wash away your sin. First John 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our faults to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I believe it's Psalm 3 verse 12. It says, as far as the east is the west, so far he removed our transgressions from us. Jesus' blood is able to cleanse you. And the reason why you're feeling that way is because you've not yet come. You come to church, but you haven't come to Jesus. Because Jesus said, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He said, come to me. Come to me. The next excuse is the pain and the tragedy excuse. This excuse justifies not coming to Jesus due to a painful or traumatic event, filling them with bitterness, anger, and mistrust. You've experienced a trauma. You were betrayed. You lost a loved one. Someone died. You lost your spouse. Maybe they left you. You've lost a baby, perhaps. Maybe you lost a child in, in gang violence. Whatever it is, you've, you've been hurt. Maybe you were molested. Perhaps you were raped. Maybe your father didn't love you and abandoned you. Whatever it is, you've experienced a trauma, and now you're so filled with anger and hatred, and say, how could I believe in a loving God? Why should I come to this Jesus of yours when I have experienced so much loss and hurt and suffering and pain? And I'm going to tell you what God said to Satan. Have you considered my servant Job? My boy lost 10 kids in one day. He lost all of his wealth. Lost his health. His own wife is turned against say, curse God and die. And he said, yet though he slay me. Yet will I trust in him. He'll point to the martyrs. He'll point to the prophets. Who had every excuse not to follow God. To renounce their faith. To walk away from everything. To walk away from this Jesus that we're talking about. Yet despite the pain. Despite their family members betraying them. They still held on to God's unchanging hand. That is not an excuse. To stay in sin and reject the mercy and the grace that God is affording you. Because no matter what you've suffered, someone else has suffered more. Here's one, uh, Jesus. But I lost a loved one. But I've been hurt. I was nailed to a cross. I lose Anyone who doesn't come to me, I grieve over. You have lost a loved one. I'm losing billions. Put that in perspective. Think of the person you love the most that you've lost. Multiply that by a few billion. And that's what God experiences every day. Because every sinner Jesus Christ loves with such passion that it it willed him, it compelled him to stay on a rugged cross. It was not the nails that held him. It was his love for us that held him to that cross. Can you look into the battered eyes and frame of Jesus whose bones were dislocated, whose body was stripped bare of all of its skin? He was just a piece of meat. As the cat of nine tails impaled him and ripped whole chunks of flesh from his body. As he was pelted with stones from all the uh, people in, in Jerusalem. As he was mocked and spit upon and slandered and maligned and libeled. Uh, his hair ripped from his face. Can you look into his eyes and say, well, you know what, Jesus? Uh, I've suffered too much. I can't believe in you. 
Hebrews 4.15 says this, For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we have attained mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. I don't serve some aloof deity that sits in the throne making edicts and rules. I serve a God that left the grandeur of heaven, became one of us, and bore my pain, bore my sin, bore my sicknesses and diseases. Down to my last one. I know you've been like, man, is this dude getting done? I'm sorry, y'all got a lot of excuses, so I got to get rid of them all before we... You get rid of these excuses, we can get done with this real quick. The intellectual excuse. This excuse justifies not coming to Jesus because they say the Bible is illogical, contradictory, or absurd, and that they have not seen enough evidence to persuade them to believe. I don't believe the Bible because it's absurd. It's illogical. It has all these contradictions. It has all these crazy rules and, le- and regulations and laws. I can't. It's, it's just. I can't. I can't believe in this thing. I can't. I can't come to this. In a debate with John Lennox entitled "Can Science Explain Everything," renowned scientist and atheist Peter Atkins was asked the question: "Is there any evidence that could be presented that would persuade you, persuade you to believe in God?" So this is an atheist being asked: "Is there any evidence I could give you that would get you to change camps and believe in God as opposed to not believe in God?" Listen to Peter Atkins' response. I think that's very interesting. I've asked myself that question previously. Is there any evidence that would flip me into the belief camp? I simply can't think of any. I think if I tell myself that if I agree with some evidence, then it showed that my senses had gone mad. So it's a serious question. But I think that there can be no evidence. The moderator of the debate says, are you saying your position is unfalsifiable in that sense? Peter Atkins responds, listen to what he says here. Yes, because even if I was standing at the foot of the cross and I saw the resurrection before my very eyes, I'd put it down to hallucination. Now, understand this. This is a scientist. We have a scientist who claims that any legitimate position of value needs to be based on empirical evidence, yet he bases his own ultimately on feeling and belief. If no amount of evidence to the contrary of a belief can dissuade it, then it's not scientific, but it's philosophical and purely based upon choice. The problem is not that we have a lack of evidence. It's the problem is you don't just want to believe the truth. You don't want to accept the evidence. So you're going to come with every excuse and try and find contradictions and say this is absurd and say this is logical so that you don't have to believe it. Which brings me to my main text. Romans chapter 1 verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. For God hath showed it unto them for the invisible things of him that from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made even his eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse. That when you look at the splendor and the intricacies of creation and you look at the starlit sky and all the galaxies and planets and all of the celestial bodies, how dare you say that there is not a God? When Psalm 19, 1 says that the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day and day the other speech, night and night they showeth knowledge. When you look at the DNA structure and the DNA molecule and see the design and the information contained within it, how can you deny the existence of there being a God? No, we just don't want to accept it. We have all these excuses. I'm going to close with this. I had more, but I I think y'all heard enough. (laughs) I'm going to skip some stuff because we're out of time. All right, here we go. Here's the problem, folks. When we stand before God's throne... We'd better be without excuses. I want to read this, this verse. Luke chapter 18, verse 9. And he spake this parable unto certain which trusted themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a, th- a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I'm not as other men are, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican standing afar off would not lift up so much as his eyes into heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. 
I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. When a person excuses themselves before God, they will come under his judgment. But when a person comes to God with no excuses, he justifies them and they escape judgment. I want to, I'm not sure if y'all caught that. (laughs) When we come to God with excuses and standing in our own righteousness, we are asking God to punish us according to our righteousness. Because all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. And the very thing you're trying to escape, you're actually running 100, 100 miles per hour right into it, which is God's wrath. But when you come to God with no excuses, say, God, I have no reason to stay in this state. I am a low-down, wretched sinner who needs your grace to save me. God says, I forgive you and I excuse you from my wrath. You see how the world's got it backwards? You come to God with excuses instead of repentance. We come to God with excuses instead of an apology because we want to avoid judgment. But again, what Jesus said, if a man tries to save his life, he's going to lose it. So you keep coming with reasons why I can't come to Jesus, why I can't come, why I can't believe, why I can't believe. And you're doing this to try to escape the obligations and the responsibilities of what it means to be a Christian. But if you just come to God with no excuses, that is when you will find justification. Let's stand. I went way too long. Not bad. All right. (laughs) What's your excuse? Is your your excuse something you made up? Or did you get excused from God? If your excuse is coming from yourself, then you are walking right into the flames of hell. Let me just be blunt with you. But if you're going to God with no excuses and say, God, I have no reason not to believe in you, no reason to not serve you, then that is when you will get excused and exempt from judgment. I think of the story of the, of the demoniac, of the demoniac, the, the man with the legion. This man was possessed with, some say, as much as 6,000 devils. This man had tried to be tamed by every human invention, but could not. They put chains and and ropes on him, but he snapped them all in two. He was so driven by all these devils. The Bible says night and day he was in the tombs in the cemetery, cutting himself with stones. Sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? Self-injury. Cutters. You ever heard of those emos, people who cut and injure themselves? And they do that because they've experienced a trauma so horrible, they have no way to process it. And they are mostly numb. And the physical pain is better than the emptiness and the numbness that's inside. This man possibly had experienced a trauma so horrible that it made him an open door for 6,000 devils to possess. The Bible says that he was naked, living in the tombs. Everywhere he looked, all he saw was death. Anyone else that was there was dead. His situation was hopeless and lifeless. But the Bible says... I believe it's in Mark chapter 5, verse 4. That when he saw Jesus, that he ran and worshipped him. Let me make this straight. Nobody preached to him and said, that guy can help you. Also understand this. This guy was demon possessed. Not just by one, not by two, but thousands of devils. Last hour, devils, they don't like Jesus, being around Jesus. The man was naked and oozing pus and blood from all the cuts he had. He had every reason and obstacle to fight against not to get to Jesus. But when he saw Jesus, he ran. The devils could not stop him, not from coming to church, but from coming to Jesus. They He ran and he worshipped him. So what's stopping you? What's your excuse? This is a dangerous message to preach because this puts us all under accountability. But it's what the church needs. If we're going to see revival, we've got to get rid of the excuses. And stop lying to ourselves. So I give you this opportunity. These altars are open. Not to come to an altar, but to come to Jesus. 
And when you come to Jesus, come with no excuses. Come with no defenses. Come with no arguments. Well, but God, what about this? Come with no excuses and you will leave with the greatest excuse in your life. Because Jesus Christ has justified you. No excuses. There's no reason for me to stay in this lifestyle. There's no reason for me to stay in my sin. There's no reason for me to live this way. All I can do is I can come to Jesus. I can come to Jesus. I came to Jesus. We were wounded in sand. And I found in him a resting place. And he hath made me glad. These altars are open. To come to Jesus. Remove the excuses. I know this was a hard message. I know I seem mean and judgmental and self-righteous. I'm doing this because I've seen the houses on fire and I've got to wake you up. I don't have time to play games. I don't have time to, to sugarcoat. I don't have time. I'm not sure even listening to pastors teaching, but we're very close to the end. We don't have time to play games. Jesus is coming back for a bride that's spotless, that's holy, and that's blameless. Will you come to Jesus? Or will you continue to hide behind your excuses? Hallelujah, I'm going to pray. I'm going to come and pray for those that are here at the altar. We need revival, church. We need revival. Somebody needs to be saved. Somebody needs to be born again. And it's only going to happen when you stop hiding behind your excuses. Father, have your way today. I've done as you asked, O oh God, and preach your word as best as I can. Father, I pray they hear your heart and how much you love them and desire to have relationship with them. I pray, oh God, that conviction would strike this church, that all of us would come to you and not just to a personality, not just a charismatic speaker, or not just to an altar or just another congregation, but they'd come to you, that they would experience the righteousness and the goodness of God. In the name of Jesus, have your way, God. Have your way. We come to you with no excuses. We come to you with no arguments. We come to you open our hearts, oh God, afresh to you. Have your way in us. We turn to you, creating us a clean heart, oh God. Renew a right spirit within us. Oh God, in the name of Jesus, draw us unto repentance and convict our hearts that we turn to you. In Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Why don't we sing? Praise God.